condemned to exist eternally, unliving but undead, and tormented by mortal passions, he is known as Dracula. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror! <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to my humble abode. You might be wondering where the Chris Keeper is. Well, I've given him the night off, and I... Count DeMangela will be hosting tonight's tale. And you are in for a treat, as we are going to take a look at my Eastern European cousin's introduction to Marvel comic books with Tomb of Dracula, numero uno. And all of this is part of a celebration of the man who brought my Carpathian king back into prominence, the writer Sherry Conway. So... Prepare yourself for thrills as the children of the night tell you about it. But now, I have to take care of some blonde a-hole who keeps tossing a silver compact at me. That little jerk is starting to get on my nerves. I have to take him out and beat his Hello and welcome to the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Engel, and today on the show we're taking a break from our coverage of Friday the 13th and Phantasm movies and taking a look at a very special comic book. But a little backstory before we get into that. A couple of weeks ago, writer and creator Jerry Conway posted on his blog that a derivative character of the one he had created, Caitlin Snow on the Flash TV show, is for some reason not being credited to him creatively or financially. When he went to DC Warner Brothers to ask about this issue, he was told that even though he was the creator of Killer Frost, and Caitlin Snow was the name of that character who became that villain, since she was not that villain in the show, Conway had no claim on her as a creation. In fact, DC Warner Brothers offered up some mumbo-jumbo about the character having no real creator at all. Of course, this lunacy sparks some outrage amongst fans of Mr. Conway, but rather than gathering up pitchforks and torches and storming the DC offices, or more likely bitching about it on Facebook, a great group of podcasters and bloggers have decided the best thing that they could do would be to celebrate Mr. Conway's works and creations in an event called the Conway Crossover. And that's crossover with an X because that's cool and stuff. And as extreme. It's extreme. It is extreme. And as our part in this event, the guys in the Vault Show are going to be talking about Tomb of Dracula number one, the introduction of the vampiric character into the Marvel Universe. And of course, when I speak of the guys on the Vault Show, I refer to none other than my good friends, Mr. Chris, the Tomb of Honeywell. Good evening. The hair metal hero by night, Mr. Chris Tyler. I'm adopted, so I don't know who created me, so... 
<laughs> Luke the Midichlorians. <laughs> Midichlorians. <laughs> Actually, I prefer to think of myself as Venus. I sprang fully formed. Midichlorians. Uh, there we go. It's, that's more like it. Wasn't that Athena? Yeah, Athena. Yeah. Oh, it's Athena. Whatever. She sprang from Zeus's head. Whatever. I want to come out naked on the oyster shell. Come on. Yes. Hero on the half shell. Oh, uh, uh, power. power, man. Already off the rails. We've got, we've, we've also got Luke the Living Mummy Jack Nettie. You don't understand! <laughs> <laughs> and we're introducing our latest addition to the Vault Show, Jason Giant Size Man Thing Jack Nettie. Hello, sir. Hey, uh, they're dumber than five pounds of stupid. <laughs> Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, that's not the exact photo I was going for, but it, it, it'll do. Nah, that works. You're, you're, you're dumber than a five-pound bag of stupid. That's what it is. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to start incorporating that. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to be, like I said, we're taking a break from the movies this time, and we're going to talk about Tomb of Dracula number one. And uh, if we do we have anything that we want to say before we get into synopsis, or do we just want to head into that? Yeah, let's, yeah. Okay, cool. cool. All right, well, like like we do on the other shows, we'll just go ahead with like the information about it. This comes from Mike's Amazing World at DC Comics. Got Tomb of Dracula number one, cover date April 1972. Uh, approximate release date was November 23rd of 71. Cover price of 20 whole cents. Wow. Got this. You know, if you try and buy this comic now, it's not going to cost you 20 cents. No. Um, Cost you 200 times that. Uh, probably that. Uh, the title was Dracula. The writer, of course, was Jerry Conway. The artist was Gene Colan. Letter was John Costanza. And the editor was Stan Lee. Hours have passed since the storm began. Long hours since the last light of day cast webbings of shadow over this craggy hillside. Everywhere there is rain. An oppressive rain that seems to swallow all sound and replace those normal sounds of twilight with a kind of hollow echo. And echo? Yay. An echo of many things, of other times in this place, of other men and of other eyes, of one man, a man who has become legend, a man whose name is whispered by these weary hill people, a man whose name is Dracula. On a dark and dismal road, a lone car makes its way towards its final destination. Inside, Clifton Graves complains that the driver, Frank Drake, is lost and won't get them to the castle on time. But Frank replies that he somehow knows this road and he can't get lost. Of course, Frank didn't say that he couldn't run the car into a ditch, stranding the men and Frank's girlfriend, Jeannie. Luckily, they passed a small village a few miles back where the trio thinks that they could find another means to get into the castle. As the trio make their way back to the town, Frank speculates that Clifton's anger towards them might not be just because Frank wrecked the car, but because he's now putting the pipe to Jeannie, Clifton's former girlfriend. Ooh. Meanwhile, at the aforementioned village, the local bar patrons and hooers are hoping that the arrival of Frank Drake will bring some much-needed tourism dollars to the town. And on cue, Frank, Clifton, and Jeannie arrive at the pub and ask for a man called Bergeister. The old man pipes up and welcomes the trio to Transylvania. Seeing that the group have no transportation, Bergeister says that they are pretty much up the creek without a paddle, as as no one in their right mind would take them to the castle. Luckily, town drunk Otto doesn't fit into that category, and he says that he'll take them there in his carriage. As they depart, Hootie McBoobalich warns Drake about crazy old Otto. 
<laughs> it's got the death curse! Mm. As the rain pours down, Otto takes the trio to within walking distance of the castle, then hightails it out of there. As Frank ponders his plans for the castle, Clifton tries to make time with Jeannie, but she's so over him and has the hots for Frankie, despite the fact that he blew his entire $1 million inheritance, wow, $1 million, over $1 the course of... In 72, that's a lot of that. That's true. Over the course of a couple of years. But now, if he can turn his ancestral home, Castle Dracula, into a macabre attraction, he can go back to living the high life. Of course, the whole being a descendant of Dracula, as well possibly a guy with a wooden stake through his chest being in the castle, could hinder those plans. But Frank is willing to risk it. As the trio finally reach the gate, Frank begins to feel a strange sense of familiarity. They enter the main hall and are suddenly beset upon by a swarm... A, a gaggle? Wait, let me hold on Google this. A cloud. A cloud of bats. That's what they're called. Freaked out, Jeannie reaches for a silver compact, foreshadowing, and Clifton, and Clifton skulks off and falls through the wooden floor into the basement. Collecting himself, Clifton finds that he's fallen into a tomb, possibly a tomb of Dracula. And, <gasps> and would you know it, Done. he finds a coffin with the skeletal remains of Dracula inside, staked to the chest and all. I was wondering if that was going to happen. Surprisingly enough, it does. <laughs> Being the dumbest human being on the planet, Clifton removes the stake, allowing the body of the Prince of Evil to coalesce around his bones and knock the Mensa member into a well where he'll have to put the lotion on his skin or else he'll get the hose again. <laughs> Was he a great big fat person? <laughs> Unfortunately, he wasn't. Upstairs, Frank and Jeannie find the hole in the floor and soon after witness a talking bat rising from it. A talking bat that transforms into the dread visage of Dracula. Hoping for a taste of that sweet 70s debutante plasma, Dracula beckons Jeannie to come to him, but a well-honed pimp slap knocks her out of her hypnotic trance and allows Frank to use her silver compact, see, I told you it'd come into play, to drive Dracula away. While Frank wonders what to do with the probably dead Clifton and the close-to-dying Jeannie, Dracula flies towards the village and enjoys a little snack, uh, courtesy of the whore Hootie McBoobledge. This riles the townsfolk, who grab the torches and pitchforks, which they just have handy, and head for the castle. After his snack, Dracula also heads back to the castle, only to find Genie lying in bed, waiting for him like a sizzler all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad this buffet was booby-trapped, pun intended, because Ooh. she had a cru crucifix around her neck. No, she did not. A crucifix oh. has the image of Christ okay, on it. Okay, she had, she had a cross around her. And Frank steps in and prepares to take the undead foe down by showing him his reflection in a mirror and tossing the silver compact at him. Yeah, that works out about as well Basically as you think it would. Basically picking on him and taunting him. Yeah, that works out about as well as you think it would. And Dracula goes all like Turner on Frank. <laughs> what? Right. Love had nothing to do with it. No. Baby, come back. Baby, look what you made me do. <laughs> Oh, we're going to get in so much trouble. No, we're not. No, like no women are listening to this. No. <laughs> Turner is not listening to this. I'm sorry, Mr. Conway. I apologize. <laughs> Sir, we don't need another hero joke here, yes. too. Oh. Hey, 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 I'm right here. Okay. While her paramour is getting choked out, Jeannie wakes up, and Dracula commands her to move the cross and drop it out the window. Amazingly, the passing villagers find the fallen cross and feel that since all hope is lost, it's completely fine to burn the place to the ground. 
inside, Frank awakens to witness flames all around, and in a desperate move, he thrusts the silver compact in Dracula's way, causing him to flee as his home burns around him. Wearily, Frank carries the body of Jeannie out of the Inferno, and lies her still body on the ground. Telling villagers that Dracula is gone, Frank tents the body of his love, while the villagers go back to their drinking and whoring. But it's too late. Jeannie is dead. Dead. Dead, I tell you, she's dead! Oh, oh, wait, but not so fast, because when you're bit bitten by a vampire, you never die. Never. And as Frank sees the looming bat overhead, he knows that he's lost her, and perhaps forever gained a demon's curse. And there we go. Tomb of Dracula. When has a crowd of townspeople ever not decided to burn something to the ground? You know, (laughs) unfortunately, we're seeing that, you know, that what happens in 1972 in uh, Transylvania, you know, can sometimes occur in in modern times in, uh, oh, certain places like Baltimore. I don't know. Casket and CBS. There you go. I was... I was going to say certain places like Facebook, but yes, that works as well. <laughs> I, I just, I love how it doesn't matter whenever you go to Transylvania in any medium, regardless of the era, it's always 1572 <laughs> to the clothing. Yes. Yeah, it's all, all I, Transylvania is made up of isolated villi- villages. Mm-hmm. With, with, you know, people who have no access to, uh, you know, automobiles, everyone's driving around in carriages and wearing, sure. you know, the harlot clothes. So, yeah. I had no problem with the holler clothes, but, you yeah. know, no. the guys look like they're playing an Opa band is a little, you know. <laughs> Gene Colan draws a mean harlot, I gotta tell. Oh, Gene yeah. Gene yeah. draws a mean everything. This book looks oh. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, I, it's I, dripping with that. I, I have the essential, so I read it in glorious yes. black and white. So you know, I, there, there was a link, and I'll try and put it in the show notes if I can, uh, to an archive.org uh, site that actually had... The uh, scans of the essential, uh, yeah. yeah, of the essential, and it's yep. it's really nice. I was able to get, uh, and I'm holding my hand the uh, the uh, trade paperback of it, and it's it's in color, and the color looks really good. Comparing the two, I might actually have to go with the color one. I mean, uh, the the black and white is nice because you get more of Colin's art style without the color, but they're both beautiful to look yeah. at. Yeah, I mean the co- the color in in the original tomb of Dracula was just perfectly moody they used to scare the hell out of me when i was a little kid that's when i mostly got to read them is you know they would be there would be a tomb of dracula sprinkled amongst casper the friendly ghost (laughs) (laughs) you know it's all it's all blues and you know there's not even like bright blood red in it it's always just sort of like that great crimson color that looks really beautiful on newsprint that's what I love about these essentials too, is they're on nice kinda yellowy newsprint, you know, it's not pure white. I, I just love it. Can we can we talk about how rad seventies pimp Dracula is? Mm-hmm. Yes. That is a Dracula unlike any other Dracula. Well I think they I think they just tried to combine all the Draculas. I think there's a really heavy sort of um, maybe just because it was the most recent Dracula's then was, uh, the hammer sort, and then they just marveled him up, you know? Well, he's beefy. Like, he looks beefy. He doesn't really look gaunt. 
Right, his, right. His face is too big, and his hair is too crazy. Like he looks, he looks like he could take you out by just well, like shoving his shoulder into he's you. He's kind of like the evil Doctor Strange, kind of, in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah I go with the cape and the suit. Yeah, I could buy that. No, I mean uh, it's you know, Dra- Hero is absolutely right. I mean this this look for Dracula is. To me, if you're a certain age, just as iconic as Christopher Lee or uh, Bela Lugosi, you know, this, I mean, this was dra- the Dracula from Marvel Comics for, you know, 25 years. Anytime he showed up, this is what he looked like. I, I gotta you say, know? as a kid, I liked the comic Dracula, maybe even as an adult. I like, like, dra- Dracula or vampire movies, but th- these comics I like a lot more. They're just as as convoluted as, say, the Hammer movies were with, like, oh, well, this time he died with a wagon wheel. <laughs> <laughs> a wagon wheel? Yeah, it was a wooden wagon wheel, you know? It, you know they it could be worse. Is it could be worse. It could be, like, which one is it? Um, is it, um, it must be Dracula AD 1972, where they're killing the brides with the, in the bathtub? It's not a bat. well, it's not a bathtub, it's the running water, yeah. Right, but I'm saying I don't think you know I don't think the vampiric legend of yeah. running water meant that. Yeah. Oh, well, indoor plumbing counts as running water now. Yeah. I don't know that that <laughs> works. <laughs> I agree. But Bury him under your your sink. Yeah. <laughs> so remember in was in, in with the satanic rites, the last one. That's where he's torn apart by the thorn. Yeah. Like okay, like what? Like they're like oh, it's the same like the thorns in Christ. I'm like sure. <laughs> That's a stretch. I'm willing to buy everything this point. I'll buy that. Yeah, it's like I, I bought Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. The, oh my! Well, that's which a totally is like, different kind of movie. That's so. a freaking fantastic. But anyway, this, we're not a Hammer pod, Hammer movie podcast yet. Yes, so eventually we will be. Eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll hit that. Yeah. But yeah, this this has a lot of the tropes of your typical Dracula movie: the spooky castle, Dracula being found with a stake in him. You take the stake out, and he comes back to life. The idea of the crucif or the cru- cross, I guess I used to call it. I'd call it a crucifix because I didn't see that it didn't depict the image of Jesus. I know that might have been part of the comics code at the time. They may not have been able to do that, but uh, yeah, I'm looking here at the page. What is it? It's page 22 of the book where where Frank throws the uh, silver compact at him, thinking that that might do something to him, <laughs> other than just kind of irked him. I feel like him throwing the compact at him. Was like, remember in the old movies, and the guy would like run out of the old gangster movies. He'd run out of bullets and yes. throw the gun. Throw the gun at him, yeah. <laughs> like I felt like that. I'm reading this going. He just really throw the compact at him. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he got his. He's got his things mixed up. He, you want to throw the silver compact at the werewolf, not the vampire. Generally <laughs> speaking. That, yeah, you could bounce the compact off his head, and he would say, "Ow, <laughs> ow, hey, stop that." <laughs> Yeah, quit it. <laughs> hey, knock, knock it off. I'm Dracula. Jeez, man. The, uh, Is this gonna kill you? Is this gonna bite you? I love, I love the sound that it makes, though. Whack. W A K. Yeah. The first thing I noticed, I started. I, I said this to, to Luke the other day. Um, being someone who's not, I mean, I'm not a big comic book guy, but I let a, a read a lot of DC comics, and that was really what I was into. Um, kind of thing. I was into Batman, which I'm not supposed to be, you know, according to the other show that Chris on. Um, but, you know, and like Punisher and stuff like that. But I read a lot of EC comics, which is all, you know, where they were before the code and whatever is all the reprints kind of thing. It definitely had that feel like we're setting everything up, you know, kind of thing. And it's like an intro. It's obviously an intro story, but it's like setting it all up. It's like the way they would have to kind of do that in EC real quickly. This was like, oh no, we're going to take our time. 
Like, it's just paid. Like, we're setting this up, and here they are. It's like, instead of being like, hey, we're going to this castle. Great, here's a monster. You know, kind of thing. we got to fit three of these in, you know? So, uh, definitely had that feel, kind of like, of, like it's the old kind of comics where they can not, I mean, I don't read a lot nowadays. Um, that's not, you know, kid comics, but, uh, you know, definitely setting it up a lot of, like, uh, you know, making everything kind of fit together so we can then tell our story. Oh. I, I, I mean, I like that basically every, pretty much every, um, frame, you know, every, every page of this, every, everything that happens in this is a total vampire cliche, just <laughs> one after the other. But it's, it's perfect, it, it fits, I mean, that's sort of what you need for it. And if it had had crappy art, maybe it wouldn't have worked. But I mean, it just, I don't know, maybe it's because I love these comics so much, but it's, the, the familiarity, it's, it's not that it's a collection of cliches, it's how it's presented. Well, and I mean, it's that's... presented so it, there's no nod and wink. It's it's totally serious. It's 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 that Marvel almost over serious, you know, portentous exposition, and everybody, you know, everybody expounds on their thoughts and their inner 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 uh, motivations. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, it's great. It's yes, it is. Uh, I mean, yeah. I was finding myself as I was reading it. I was reading it just like reading through it and I'm like, wait a minute, just slow down here. <laughs> and I would stop and I would look at every page and just like soak in the art and the atmosphere. Yeah, well, the thing it, about it, Chris, uh, and you make a good point, it, it is all the vampire cliches, but we made the point earlier about, you know, in the early 70s, you know, who was the outfit making all the vampire movies? It was Hammer. Right. And that's all the Hammer films really were. You know, you, we, we kind of lose they were sight of this now. No, they, they were atmosphere, but they weren't, you know, and they did creative stuff. But go back to the original, the first wave of the Hammer Horror films. They're intended to be remakes of the Universal films. Mm-hmm. So they, they use the same ideas, the same, what became the generic tropes of the Dracula movie, of the Frankenstein movie, right. of the Mummy movie. And But if you do it well, then those tropes are still entertaining and enjoyable. There's a reason why they became tropes. You know, okay, yeah, every single Dracula movie features Dracula, you know, uh, dominating the mind of a, of a comely wench, and then, you know, Well, that's what I, what I would do if I was Dracula. Right, so. I mean, we'd, we'd all do that. <laughs> but if you, but if you do that well, like, um, like Conway and Colon do here, it's entertaining because yes. that is what we want to see in a Dracula story. You know, too. Sorry. I was going to say, that, you know, the the one thing that has about it as well is it's not only those tropes, but it's also bringing this idea of this person who's an ancestor of Dracula, who's coming in to reclaim the uh, the the ancestral home for you know profit. So it's not only got the the whole tropes of your stereotypical Dracula tale, but it's got also got this sort of setup of an initial person wanting to come in and reclaim for financial gain the i you know the iconic idea of dracula and trying to turn that in so it's good writing on both parts of being a sort of you know a representation of the dracula character as well as a new story with its own set of drama and everything in it yeah and how did i mean i i this is my really my first exposure to it. i'm familiar with it I, but i haven't read it how does this go from this very universal slash hammer noir 
to incorporating Hannibal King and Blade and becoming more Marvel superhero. Tomb of Dracula is almost, and, and Honeywell, and Chris, I know you've read a lot of Tomb of Dracula, so feel free to chime in. Tomb of Dracula almost becomes sort of like an anthology. Yeah. In that there's a lot of characters. We follow Frank Drake for a while. We follow Hannibal King. We follow Blade eventually. Sometimes um, little standalone stories with other characters once in a while. I, and like, and there was a magazine too that was, the yep. magazine was even more. The magazine was Dracula like, Lives, wasn't it? Yeah. Something Dracula like that, lived, yeah. yeah. There's only yeah. like and, three issues or some, three or four right. issues before it Marvel, died. Not, Marvel did that. Out of that that was where the zombie came out of, and things yeah, like that. and yeah, this, yeah, tales of um, yeah, Garth or whatever the zombie was. Yep. So there was a lot of the. It was kind of this sweeping story that covered a lot of ground and was always, you know, that that's why it ran for as long as it did. the The comparison that I've always made in my mind is all the things that um, uh, that Kirkman always said when he started The Walking Dead. But oh, I want to do this zombie story, but you know, expand upon more than what we can tell in a two hour movie. Well, that was Tomb of Dracula, you know, 30 years prior. Is that it's, okay, we're, let's, we're gonna tell our, our monster movie, but what's, what happens after that? What happens after the last page of this, which is the, you know, the curtain call? What's the next part of the story? You know, and when you're free with that. So, you know, I'm, I'm much more familiar with uh, Frank Drake uh, from the 90s Night Stalker comic. Oh, that's, I, that was my other question. I was like, did he end up in the Midnight Suns or something? Yes, the, the, the three Knights, the Night Stalkers are Frank Drake, Hannibal King, and Blade, and they were an, they were part of the Midnight Suns uh, books, which that's where I'm much more familiar with Frank Drake. Not the kind of whiny guy here, but the guy who had been fighting the supernatural for so long that he made a giant gun called Linda that would basically mess up any supernatural being he shot with it because they had funneled every type of arcane energy into this one energy gun so that that's that's a little you know uh, uh you know far afield from where we are here in the early 70s but yeah but the, the, the but the storyline started in tomb of dracula we're still carrying on into the 90s in night stalkers yeah nice and yeah, you know is- that the other the other thing that night stalkers is known for is that's where blade moved away from using um uh the teak weapons Traditionally, Blade in the 70s fought with weapons like stakes and a sword made of wood, of teak wood. And that was where he started using silver weapons was in the 90s. Yeah, one of the things I noticed, I'm just when you start, start reading it, because uh, I haven't read any. I, Tomb of Dracula was very, very sparsely kind of intertwined here anything I've ever seen. Um, with, with, when you have the guy's name is Drake and he's the you know, descendant of Dracula, obviously you change the name because you want to avoid that. It reminded me. Uh, um, in the Hammer Frankenstein movie, as as and again very different, as the Baron is trying to like he he escapes death and he's trying to he moves he becomes Doctor Frank and then he changes his name he keeps changing his name to move away from the Frankenstein thing that's been haunting him. So it's kind of like the the obviously the the, the the Drake's ancestors wanted to you know distance themselves from Dracula and it makes perfect sense and it's like okay like yeah sure that could you, you look back on what happened. In your past, sometimes that's not stuff you necessarily want to be part of. None of us have vampires per se, but you know what I'm saying. Like, but, that's but you exactly. could all—I mean, you could even take it as far as to say Frankenstein. You know, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> well, yes, uh, but you're exactly. The same, but that's even playing off the hammer thing. The idea yeah. of changing the name so that you know you can be your own thing—it makes sense here. And what, as you're going forward, I mean, you could have had him named whatever, but it kind of makes perfect sense that he's, you know. His family has tried to distance itself. He didn't know he had a castle until his the the, the dad dies and leaves the inheritance, right? 
isn't that the whole point of this? He didn't know about any of that stuff, and yeah. you know, and you know. What, what, and, and I'm, I'm waiting for the issue where he starts up the snack food company. Drake. <laughs> Who yeah. doesn't Mike love Kate. Drake? They gotta love Drake. The other thing is too, you guys are talking about the the artwork, um, and it it again it totally reads that time. And when you look at comics of that time, um, you know the artwork. No matter who's drawing, different people draw different ways. I get it. Um, it doesn't have the feel of even the stuff from the like the '90s, and certainly not nowadays. When things, at least to me, again, a lot of stuff you're seeing, it feels very polished. It feels very like this feels like kind of raw, and it, you can tell it's someone sitting with a pen and ink and you know, really putting it out there. It yeah. doesn't feel like it's smooth. It's like the difference between uh, real, like okay, if you're watching, okay, you want to watch, uh, watch the like the like uh, curse of, curse of the werewolf when when uh, when he turns into the werewolf when when Leon turns into the werewolf and you look at it, you're like wow someone did some effects on that guy then look at how that changed into like the howling and, and things like that the way the werewolves were okay wow okay you can appreciate it. then you look at something like like we get to like underworld where the werewolves are completely smooth you're like oh like part of that. Part of that, um, what makes it so real and so visceral and allows you to kind of feel it is that you know this is a guy sitting and, and, and drawing this. This is, it's not done on a computer. It's not all, and I understand that that's totally a different type of artwork and stuff, and I appreciate that, but it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, yeah. You know, Cohen's stuff in general stands out. Cohen's yeah. and his Dracula stuff, everything feels like it's made out of shadows, fog, yeah. or cobblestones. Yeah, all yeah. the people, everything flows in this very fog, misty sort of way. And in the 90s or early 2000s, he did like a six issue Tomb of Dracula run. And it wasn't in Marvel, it was another comic company. And it, he had taken, uh, you know, and he was older, and he'd definitely taken two or three more layers into the more yeah. impressionistic side of it you know the the fog had taken over even more so like a lot of times there was literally fog everywhere with things poking through it yeah we you look at i try to remember when it was it's in color i have it downstairs somewhere it's the legion of monsters they put a trade out of that it's a hardcover trade when you look at that uh i'm trying to remember i don't that the one by uh wando and dennis hopeless the one recently it's it got it, it, I mean, it's got to be relatively recent enough where it was in hardcover and it's color. Um, yeah, that, it, that was that was written by Dennis Hopeless and the art was by Juan Doe. If I'm thinking of the same okay. book that you are. Yeah, they were trying to kind of capture that, and it's hard because it's again done. Uh, you know, it's just done in someone else's style, but they were trying to capture that kind of feel. Oh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Hold on, um, I'm, I'm going to send. I'm sending you an image in the chat. I got it right Tell here. me. Legion of Monsters, it's the hardcover, uh, Charlie Houston, I got it right here, I pulled it up. Um, uh, hang on one sec, maybe it's... And on the cover is, uh, Dracula, the werewolf by night, uh, it's like Man-Thing, and I, and the other, the woman is, hang on, let me pull it up. Um, but yeah, uh, and, uh... Oh, the, oh, uh, I know, Santa. okay, yes, I know the one you mean, yeah, that, that yeah, was the, the Mobius, four, yeah. that was the Mobius, four Mobius, Legion Mobius. of Monsters one-shots yeah. that were collected. Yeah, right. And the thing is, they kind of, in, the, in there, they try to try to get back to that old feel of stuff. Now, I know it's not too Dracula, it's Mobius, but they're trying to get back to that old feel. And, but again, it's not done the same way. You know? So it's hard when it's not done 
the way that the, the books were done in the 70s. Yeah. Well, even looking into the books in the 90s, you look at, like I said, the there was a nice resurgence because of the pop, basically because of the popularity of Ghost Rider. Marvel brought back a lot of their supernatural characters from the 70s. Like I said, we got Morbius got a new book. Uh, the Night Stalkers got a new book. Um, Werewolf by Night came back. Uh, the zombie came back for a bit. Um, so they did a lot, brought back a lot of these monster characters. And even in the 90s, you know, before the early 90s, before Marvel bought Malibu, they were still done basically the same way. There wasn't a lot of digital coloring or anything like yeah. that. It was the artist sitting down and, and working with pen and ink. And you had that raw look to it. That's one of the things I like about some of these 90s books that it harkens back to the 70s because of that kind of gloomy, overwrought look to it a little bit. And I'm much more familiar with uh, with Colin for his work on Iron Man than I am on anything else. So, to, so I always love the the see the range, you know, because Iron Man is, is a character that you know is never one that's you know covered in shadow and gloom. You know, he's a he's a daytime character to use that that online theory. Right. Whereas yeah. here, I mean, just look at just the um, like the the first. It's like the first or second page. It's the the first page after the splash when Drake and Genie. And uh, the other guy are driving, and it's just the headlights mm-hmm. among the sea of the the darkness. Mm-hmm. And then when they run off the road, and just all the scenes of them in the storm, it just looks so wonderful and so moody and evocative. You know, it, it, it's hard to do this in any medium, and Colin makes it look effortless here. You know, until you take stop and look, like you were saying, Chris, about really looking at the the art and looking at every single line that's laid in there. And you know that's that's Colin with a technical pen laying in each individual line on each individual shadow. You know, there's there's the joke that uh, Dave Sim once made. He said, uh, you know, when, when he learned how uh, 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 Bernie Wrightson had did his Frankenstein, he realized why he never saw him for ten years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same idea here, but Colin was obviously much faster. <laughs> yeah, I just was, you know. Because uh, I had read, I read the first issue. I actually read the second issue also, uh, where I was up to today, almost done with the second issue. And what I noticed here, um, you know, as you again, uh, when you look at the second issue, and, and Conway wrote that one as well. Um, some of the, it, it, it kind of, the the first issue much feels much more to me like a Universal Monsters kind of, uh, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And then you have the second one is much more the Hammer kind of thing. I understand there's both, there's in both. But just the way, um, kind of just the way, like the uh, things are laid out. Again, the hammer tried to mirror Universal, and then eventually started doing its own thing. But it kind of, reading the second issue, I kind of started feeling that too, much more like that hammer kind of thing. And actually, he did a couple pages where it's all, at least, uh, I'm to, uh, just I'm sorry, I'm scrolling. I don't have the book in front of me. Um, to you know, where the kind of the, the entire page is like got all the information on it but there's no panels like that kind of stuff this is much more panels like here's what we're talking about kind of thing you know so uh, anyway, my sorry. favorite thing about Tomb of Dracula is they never turned him into like a good guy or the you know yeah, he was a hero of some stories you know there were some stories where you know something would happen with Dracula where he's sort of rooting for him but he never became like the, it, it seems like with stuff like this, and also in this time period in the 70s, this is where the downbeat ending, especially with like science fiction and horror movie, any kind of movie, actually the downbeat ending was a big, 
big thing during this time. And I, I mean, this comic is your classic, like, guys, castles burned to the ground. He's lost his girlfriend and his supposed best friend is, I'm assuming, down in the bottom of a pit full of coals right now. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's fairly dark. <laughs> Dra- Dra- Dracula pretty much comes out on top on as soon from the moment the stake is pulled out of his heart. Well, you can't dispatch the title character in the first issue. No, yeah. no, but yeah, it's but it's just it's got that feel from that time. You know that that Soylent Green is made of people feel. That, it is. Soylent big. Green is made of Draculas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So basically, basically, Dracula never really became much of a hero or even an anti-hero in his book. He was always, and I'm wondering how much of that was... He's always was, an asshole, pretty much. I wonder how much of that was <laughs> dictated still by the comic code. Uh, you know, I know ah. that uh, at this time, you know, this is the time where over in DC, O'Neill and Adams were starting up the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run. And they were putting in more, and, and Marvel was doing it far, far greater, with far greater success in trying to book the co- or buck the code, and I'm wondering if you know their publication of this was sort of their beginning of trying to get around what the code had done and loosening things up. Because I know prior to this, there couldn't be the depiction of vampiric characters in comics. Yeah. It's not. It, the, I I think by the 70s, and with with stuff going on in culture, this comic probably looked like a throwback. It looked almost it, you know like. If you were a censor or a parent, even, and you picked up your kid's Tomb of Dracula, just flipped through it, it's almost like a Classics Illustrated, you know. Yeah. And it does have a little bit of that vibe, yeah. And and there's and there's there's a little bit of TNA, but there's... it's that TNA you can get away with because it's the it's the peasant girl clothes and stuff like that. When they got into some magazines and you started getting some nipply. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the, the one Ooh. scene where the one scene where Frank backhands genie that you know there's some there's some nice cleavage there but uh, yeah it, it, this is colon too yes, yeah. uh, it's yeah. it's it's pretty you know for for violence sake it's not really in any way gory or abhorrent or bloody. anything it's not bloody no. it, i don't think you even really see blood at all necessarily in the book if well, I'm they, yeah right. like they don't even really show the bite You'll see, the, you'll see a little drip of blood out of a, out of a, there's, you'll see, you'll see like a, a neck bite, you know, or, or I mean like you'll see the two holes in the girl's neck with a little blood coming out, or you'll see Dracula with a little going down his chin, you know, but it's not, nobody's getting their arms ripped off or, <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not the walking it's, dead. It's less, it's less gruesome than the EC stuff that, yeah. you know, got yeah. the comic. Well, the, and the other thing to remember, too, is that this is 19, this was end of 71, beginning of 72. Uh, for, you know, in, in 19, I think it's 1970, Marvel started publishing Conan the Barbarian. And there you've got a title, heroic character who is completely immoral. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the, but you know, and both of these books came around because of the relaxation of the comics code. So you could have a character that served as your your protagonist that was an immoral character that was debaucherous and uh, violent, and you know all the other uh, things that we weren't allowed to do previously. So I think a lot of it was the, a conscious decision that Dracula should be a villain always. And Marvel, they they kind of um, they they kept Dracula kind of always on that side, whereas. The, you know, he didn't run nearly as long, but Morbius had his title 
uh, his he was a star over in uh, journey, um, Adventures into Fear, and he was a star in that for about a year and a half. And then he also was in the lead feature in the short-lived Vampire Tales magazine. And with Morbius, they were able to make a vampiric character who was an antihero. You know, yes, he still right. eventually did hunt down people and drink their blood, but he felt bad about it, and then he would go and try and do things to make up for it, and, and he would fight monsters and, you know, interdimensional beings. funny is beings. he was more ghoulish looking than Dracula. He was, yeah. yeah. They he could get away like with a... more with him because of the origin of his powers, by saying yeah. that he wasn't really a vampire. But he had a superhero outfit, too, so it was just He had a disco of... outfit, also. Yeah, right. His outfit is awesome. I love... Mor- Morbius is one of my favorite... Uh, one of my favorite Marvel characters, just... I've always... I've always dug him. And, you know, I've always wanted to get more into reading Tomb of Dracula, just so I could do the compare and contrast deal with it, you know? Because uh, it, it's... It, you know, it, those are the two... When you think Marvel vampires, you think, you know, Dracula and Morbius, generally. They definitely... They definitely were tra- testing out the waters with Morbius... You know, with him being, you know, the living vampire, they, they, they were very careful how they crafted that to kind of stay kind of code friendly enough. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, you have this, this you know, monster kind of thing. And like they put things in. But, you know, you could tell I mean, that's what he, he they, they were kind of putting the toe in seeing like, will this, will this work? You know, is it OK to take Dracula? You know, kind of thing. Is it OK yeah. to push? Because after this, we had the, the floodgates open as far as the monster oh, yeah. characters. You know, I mean, uh, Werewolf by Night ran for. Geez, what, uh, 60 some odd issues or something? You know, you had, um, uh, Incantu the Living Mummy over in Supernatural Thrillers. You had Satana. You had Son of Satan. Um, you know, the zombie. You know, there's. The Frankenstein comic. Frank, yeah, Monster Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which eventually, though, it crosses over with Tomb of Dracula. There's a, there's a great bit where, um, it's, it's the, the, I always remember this cliffhanger where basically it's Dracula. They're in, they're somewhere in Eastern Europe. I don't know if they're in Transylvania specifically, but basically Dracula is, is, he's had his night out, you know, terrorizing people and he's fleeing back to his lair, which is in like a mountain, like a cave. And standing outside, blocking his way is a Frankenstein monster holding a torch saying, you know, basically ready to stomp a mud hole in Dracula. That's where it Ooh. ends. You tell me you're not going to buy the next issue if that's the last page here. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mean before? Sorry, just, I, I was looking for. I was just looking. I, I finally found it. The maybe we had said that Dracula kind of looks beefy, and you know, it's like a, kind of an amalgamation. The Dracula with the mustache. The first thing I thought of was uh, the movie called Count Dracula from 1970. Right before this came out, it was Jess Franco. Um, uh, his it had Christopher Lee playing Dracula. It's, it's uh, playing Dracula. Kind of strong. I don't know how much Lee actually does per se in the movie, but he's right. there. And he has him with the mustache, and it looks very safe. He still looks like uh, Dracula, you know, the way we've known. Remember Christopher Lee looking, but he it definitely was, uh, you know, the mustache on him and stuff like that. It's um, I think that so it's it's Jesus Franco. So that's that, that Mexico. It's either in Mexico or I think it's supposed to be set in Mexico. I'm trying to remember. Uh, or necessarily set there, but that's pretty obvious where it is. You know, kind of thing. And you see, the odd thing is that seeing him with the mustache makes me think of David Carradine. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. And it's... and of course, and and the, the what what's one of the the one one of the the showcase scenes in this issue is the guy pulling the stake out of Dracula's heart and Dracula coming back. That's oh. David Carradine's first scene as Dracula in House of Frankenstein. Oh, they pull it out and go, oh, and he comes back, you know. And that's so. Uh, and he's got that kind of now. Of course, David Carradine is not a big burly dude like Dracula is here under yeah. Gene Colan's pencils. 
But, you know, at the time, moving away from Lugosi playing him, giving him a mustache was something of a, uh, you know, that was daring for the 40s, you know. Well, you know, the thing is, I mean, like, Lugosi only played Dracula twice. Yeah. He played it in Dracula, and then he played it again in Amicus W. Frankenstein. So, uh, you know, but the thing is, when you ask people uh, of a certain age how they describe Dracula, that's how they describe Dracula. They describe it as Bela Lugosi because that became iconic. Um, depending on how you were raised, uh, you know, I might describe Dracula more looking kind of like, you know, uh, uh, Christopher Lee. And then, you, you, again, depending on what you were into, you might have it look more like, you know, as he looks in the comics. It depends on what you were into. You know what I'm saying? So. All I know is that my Dracula will never look like Gary Oldman. Hmm. <laughs> I, what, you know what? Butthead? You don't like well, the big Marge Simpson beehive hairdo on Dracula? <laughs> no, uh, that's too over. There's a lot of great style dripping in that movie. His design as a as a lech is not one of them. <laughs> yeah. When 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 the, when they cut his neck at the end and all over the bleeding out on the glow on the, the gold robes, right? The look of him, like the way he looks there, as all being draining out of him. That you're like, wow, it's powerful. I mean, it's the wolf, as the bat, whatever. Uh, you know, there are again. They they were trying for something different. Kind of, you know. You can also see what was that? Uh, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with mm-hmm. Robert De Niro, right? Yeah, they yeah. were trying something different, and it just didn't work. You know. So, but I think but again, it depends on how you envision this. Uh, uh, you know, are you envisioning Dracula to be kind of the way he, you, you know he, he's always kind of suave and you know, uh, like, always kind of like smooth talking and being that way, or is he a powerful, you know, he's a killer. either way you slice, he's still a killer. Yeah. You know. Or, just, or is he like Leslie Nielsen in Dracula Dead and Loving? Yeah. I would, I would take that one, too. <laughs> she's almost dead. She's dead enough. No. <laughs> she's oh, Nosferatu. Oh, she's Italian? Italian? Count out George Hamilton and Love at First Bite. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Dracula with a suntan. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. What's funny is, is uh, George Hamilton in that. Um, because I mean, I get it. Totally played for laughs there. But if you think about, uh, uh, was it Franklin Jella, right? Yeah. Uh, coming off of the stage play, and like the way he looks, you're like, like it wasn't that far a jump. To get he to, wasn't a bad Dracula. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But what I'm saying is, but like when you look at him compared to the Dracula we had seen to that point, very very different. And 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 uh, having never seen the actual play on Broadway. Um, but seeing the movie and the way things are interpreted, and that's, uh, who's that? Lawrence, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Olivier is in there, and, um, the Donald oh, well, Pleasant, right? Oh, I thought you, I, uh, well, yeah, Franklin Jell, I thought was a great Dracula. Yeah, right, yeah. But who did I say? Did I pick our guy? No, no, <laughs> I was just thinking, I, I was talking about, um, George Hamilton. George Hamilton was a good Dracula, but right. Frank Langella yeah. is really good. What I'm mm. saying is, when you look at Langella in that movie, it's not that far a jump to get to where he's got a tan and he's got the hair, because he was right. that, that style, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very different. But again, it, it's how you picture it. Uh, for example, uh, Blackula is actually on right now, and I just got the... Uh, no, then you laugh. I love Blackula, right? It, it, um, it's kind of... It, again... Being a modeler and stuff like that, there are certain things that there aren't a lot of them. The Blackula model is one of the things that's it's kind of a long story. But anyway, when you look at the movie, right, um, it's, you know, black exploitation, it's whatever kind of thing. But it's, it's played straight. And at no time are you sitting here going, look at what's going on in the movie. And you're like, okay, this this should be like completely schlocky and like, like all the other movies like that. Yeah. But 
what happens is, uh, you know, instead of playing it, instead of playing it, you know, tongue in cheek and, uh, you know, uh, William Marshall plays it 100% straight. So if it was supposed to be, you know, like, like Blackenstein or a couple other, yeah. he didn't play it that way. And, you know, as, as much as the movie, good Lord, is dated because I mean, the collars alone and this, this one scene is insane, <laughs> right? He could totally be what people envisioned because he, he plays it to, you know, he plays his character 100%. And he, again, he's not an evil person so much as he's trying to stop what slavery in the beginning and stuff like that. It's just that depending on how it's portrayed, it kind of just gets out there. And I think when, in, when you read Tomb of Dracula and as you read forward in Tomb of Dracula, you start seeing like, well, different writers come on and different things and it does eventually take its turn. But the one underlying conceit is that Dracula is the villain. He's a killer. He, he's going to do what he needs to do, but it doesn't have to be, you know, what, you know, like your father's Dracula kind of thing. Hmm. If that makes sense. I, li- I liked Blackula because it was like, you've got Dracula who is, ba- you know, basically he's a vampire, but he's a vampire who is made out of a sadistic killer. Yeah. Whereas Blackula was more of like a nobleman when, yeah. w- when he got made into a vampire. You know, here's the thing I've always wondered about that. Okay, we made, made Blackula, we made Screen Blackula Sweeney, they made Blackenstein. Now, of all the traditional Universal Monsters, which is the one that you could most buy as a black guy? It's probably the mummy, right? Make Being money. from Egypt, never made a black exploitation mummy movie. No, they had Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. They had Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, they had Sugar Hill, which is actually one of the... What about a wolf Sugar Hill? Sugar, Sugar Hill, Sugar Hill is actually a really, really, really good, good movie. movie but yeah. nobody's ever heard of it, is the problem, right. because it's not called, like, uh, Black Zombie Apocalypse or something, you know? <laughs> is there, was, there a, was there a black exploitation werewolf movie? I can't. I can't think of any. There was an exorcist. Where was Washington? I'm trying to remember if that was. No, I think maybe not. I maybe I'm misremembering. I but there was Abby and Ganja and Hess, which were both like exorcist knockoffs. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ganja and Hess is is I mean, uh, is a very very different kind of movie than what like you think you might be getting into. Abby, you're getting. You know what you're getting. Yeah, Abby does what it says on the box, pretty much. So, I I do not, I don't think there was a a werewolf. I don't remember a werewolf one. I said, I remember uh, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. The problem I have with Blackenstein is that the doctor in it is white. Shouldn't the doctor in Blackenstein at least be black? But there's this metatextual commentary there. I understand that, but but the the Frankenstein's the name of the doctor, not the monster. Yeah, that's all semantics, Lou. No one, no one buys that. Everyone calls, everyone calls, you know, the monster Frankenstein, even though they should know it's the it's the creator who's Frankenstein. I mean, that's like I, the beginning. That's like the beginning of Scream, right there. You know, who's mm-hmm. the killer in Friday Thirteenth? I like one? when you hear little kids talk about Frankenstein's, and then the Frankenstein's were coming and stuff. <laughs> they were coming over. They brought a lovely quiche. It was awesome. <laughs> You say little kids talking about Frankenstein. Hilda and Elmer Frankenstein. You say little kids talking about Frankenstein. It's like, don't be chicken shit! (laughs) 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 Where else Washington was the one I was thinking of? It's not that. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. It's not that, though. Well, Um, I was going to say... The Werewolf of Washington Heights is what it would be if it was a black exploitation. (laughs) Oh, it's like people. Remember they made, uh, what was it, Bones? The Snoop Dogg movie? Yeah. And, um... And then they had like Tales from the Hood, and Tales you from the had good Tales from the Hood is actually a really good movie. And you watch Tales from the Hood, um, and a lot of people are like, eh, whatever. They kind of like it actually was well thought out and stuff. 
but like was it Bones and then um then they, but then they made him like Bones was good you're like okay he's a former pimp he's dead he's a ghost okay like these are things that made sense and that those were made much later obviously kind of rehashing re- things from there but it, it made people go back and look at things people went back and said I'll give Ganja and Hesit a try I'll give you know Black uh, Blackula uh, you know a chance or I'll give you know whatever it, making a good movie or anything doesn't matter what it is but making a good movie means you got to have solid writing you got to have people who are taking it seriously you don't have to have money coming out your ass right. it's just got to be well acted what's there yeah have some energy to it you know when when you edit it and stuff mm-hmm. like that i mean the youtube is so full of great grindhouse movies now when you mentioned jesus franco a few mm-hmm. minutes back, it just reminded me if you just put his name and all the variations of his name into YouTube, there's just hundreds of his movies there, for better or worse. Yeah. Okay. So, one, one thing I wanted to mention uh, before we get to the creative stuff, um, there actually is a movie, Tomb of Dragon, which was a TV movie was made in Japan. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, and, uh, I mean, 1980, uh, it's and, animated, right? Yes, it is animated. Yeah. Um, the weird I, thing it, is, it's animated by the same um, animation studio that did Spider-Man: His Amazing Friends. Sunbow. Yeah. Hmm. So it looks like an incredibly dark episode of Spider-Man: His Amazing <laughs> Friends. It really does. Does it have? Happen? Does it have anything to do with the Tomb of Dracula comic? Or is the it, design yeah. is the yeah. Dracula, the, the colon Dracula. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, it's got it's got. I want to say it's got Frank Drake and Hannibal King in it. I think I watched it once, and I don't remember much about it, but I remember it being better than I thought it was going to yeah. be. What What's it's, funny is yeah. that Dracula does in fact show up on Spider Man and his Amazing Friends. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, that's right. And and what in a line that you know my brother and I have yelled at each other for years. Whatever you're doing, Webhead, make it fast. He's making yeah. Swiss cheese out of the store. Swiss store. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole thing doing that though. Yeah. Uh, but that's what you call it. In the thing, it, it takes right from the book. Series. He assumes control of a satanic cult uh, and fathers a child through one of his followers, but is, you know, got to pick between good and evil. You know, they, they, he's the ultimate villain in it, and then the people who are like, well, we all got to team up and kill him. And that's, think about that. That's really what goes forward here. It's like whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, quote unquote, you were a white hat or a black hat. Well, this is the guy. Like, we got to get this guy because he ain't ever going to do anything nice, and he'll kill both of us. So. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. I, I know we kind of, you know, we kind of get all over the map here, but I figured, um, especially, uh, what do you call, uh, once they mentioned it and it, it was animated in Japan, Luke would know exactly who animated it because, you know, therefore, so, <laughs> um, and, and actually funny is on the, uh, on the writers, quote, the people who are, uh, credited as writers, um, Bram Stoker, of course, gets writing credit, right? Uh, Marv Wolfman, um, Gene Colan and uh, and Tom Palmer, right? Get get the writing credits for that. Two of which kind are of, artists, not writers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Two, that's what I'm saying. They get the writing credits. Two of the arts. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the cover back here. It says you know Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. Now, granted, Wolfman probably did more of the titles than uh, Jerry Conway did, but Jerry Conway was essentially the creator, and that's kind of yeah. what I'd like to get into here. You know, the idea of creator rights, specifically with Dracula, because Dracula is a a character that, you know, comes from Bram Stoker, and obviously it's, it's past due, 
you know, you know it, it, it's it's not falling into that uh, category of oh, what am I thinking of? Uh, license public domain. Yeah, public, public domain. domain. Exactly. It's in public domain. You know, it can be used by pretty much anyone. So is is this creation of Dracula here? Could Conway call this technically his creation? Because although we see in the book there's a lot of uh, things that segue into the uh, Dracula lore, you know, this, him being afraid of silver, his uh, reflection in a mirror, the the cross and all that, the pulling out of the stake. Can this be an original creation by Jerry Conway? And could he it's, claim that it's that? I, I'm trying, you know, or, like... The or would it be a derivative? Of, but the, the, the character is not. Yeah, the visual I mean, design of him, but who is responsible for the visual design? Was it Gene Colan? Was it Gene Colan after, you know, was it part, did people sit down and did if you know, th- somebody else make yeah. the sketch if first, you think of the marvel knows? if you think of the marvel method it's probably a bit of both because you know conway was writing it and colin was illustrating it and they kind of do it in that method where colin turns in the pages to uh to uh, conway and Con- conway writes the dialogue along with it so could be I mean, some of that well, i mean know, and- if 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 say you know didn't um, Eddie Murphy do a Dracula movie at some point or something. Vampire in Brooklyn. Vampire in Brooklyn or, or like Dracula 2000 or something like that. Couldn't they step in and say, hey, you know, there's elements of our Dracula in this if Marvel did a Dracula movie. You know, who's who's to say, like Sherlock Holmes. Who- yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's even, and, and especially like Sean was getting at with when you're talking about an artistic look of a character visually, right? That is some really thorny territory because I think the the best example of that to keep it in Marvel from the same era is Ghost Rider. You know, Mike Plug was the first guy that drew Ghost Rider, but Mike Plug was not credited as his creator because Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich were credited as Ghost Rider's well, they creator, came up with though, the idea and said, "Hey, Mike Blue, or, did, or right. who knows? Or did he come in with a sketch and go?" No, they, they, it, was, it was the the story was that it was uh, that Plug had made, or no, that they made a character. It was going to be a bad guy. Gary Friedrich had made him. It was going to be a bad guy in Daredevil, and we we're going to call. And this is well, the the stunt master came in was he was the replacement basically for Ghost Rider, and so that it was all this you know question of what you know who. Was it Roy Thomas? Was it Gary Friedrich? Who who came up with the the details of him? But the look was originally designed by Mike Plug. Now the question is, okay, yeah, Mike Plug didn't have anything to do with the actual writing of the stories. He was just the artist. But would Ghost Rider have become as popular as he was if not for the design that Mike Plug had made for him? Would anyone care? So you know, it, it, it and and just and just recently, I think it was last year or. 2013 that Marvel officially recognized Mike Blue's contribution to the creation of the character Ghost Rider. Because, and this gets into kind of the issue as far as derivative characters. Every version of Ghost Rider after Johnny Blaze, now this of course discounts the, uh, the Western character that was the first to use the name Ghost Rider. Every motorcycle or uh, muscle car driving version of Ghost Rider is based on the design by Mike Blue. So, all of so is, does Mike Blue have a does he have an end to say, well, I'm a co-creator of Danny Ketch because without what I drew for Johnny Blaze, Danny Ketch wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. You see, yeah. so that's, that's what makes it that slippery slope, well, uh, especially with derivative characters. And when you're dealing with stuff that's in the public domain, 
I mean, I'm sure Alan Moore would love to say that he's, you know, gets a creator credit on all the characters he used in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> no, I don't no. think that's the way that works, you know? <laughs> There's a stronger case, though, by having them all together at once. The concept of the league, it's the yes, concept he's the of it, of, yeah. But not of, you know, Mr. Hyde and right. Alan Quartermain and everyone else. <laughs> Although he does give them their his Alan Moore, you know, alternate reality, sort of Philip Jose Farmer style, you know, if this character was real, this is what right. what they would be like. Yeah, yeah but, but, but by the same I mean, James Whale can't claim ownership on Frankenstein's monster by the same token. Yeah. And I he mean, created it, the version of Frankenstein monster that has endured for a century. But or close like, to a century. And, and and another thing that sort of I think tangles it up is you know, when you're talking about sixties and seventies, eighties or you know, Marvel com- the big two comics, you're talking about a production house. Like you, you know, so that so people had all sorts of contracts probably that limited how much credit and money that you know that that. Well, I mean, if you sign a contract that's work for hire, I, right, right, your SOL. You I mean, know, it gets that's... it gets subsumed, and I think there were probably I don't know much about the you know the contracts of of those days, but I can't imagine that they were pretty that they were very tilted towards the artist. At, no, and I'm sure they were. All. And and I would imagine, you know, it, it, it's a little exploitive, it, it, or very, or it's exploitive, I guess, just to yeah, have people who have dreams of, you know, but here's the like, thing I'll do I, anything for Marvel Comics or whatever, but and I mean, to be an artist on that, so... But you need to realize that going in, like, if It's Marvel like making said, a movie hey, for trauma, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but if Marvel said, hey, we want you to write a Spider-Man story... Right, and I create a character for it, and it's work for hire. Right, right. Real character, like I have no. You really, you can't, you can't complain. I mean, especially nowadays where everybody can get a lawyer, and you can look at a contract. If you're not happy with the contract, you don't sign it. Right. I mean, right. I, I can't, I can't go after the fact after I get my phone bill and say, well, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't like this. I'm not going to pay my phone bill. You know, you sign a contract, <laughs> and you're bound to. It. Well, and I think I think that's what was going on with Conway. He was, uh, you know, I'm certain that at the time it was work for hire, but they had something in place where, and uh, this was covered. If you guys listen to the uh, podcast that Robin Shag did on uh, the interview of Jerry Conway, yeah. he said essentially what had happened was during the time when Paul Levitz was the head of DC Entertainment, they would compensate creators whenever their characters would show up in other mediums, even if they were derivative characters. Now, once the transition from Paul Levitz being sort of the CEO to uh, Dan DiDio, and I'm not placing blame on Dan DiDio, as much fun as that is to do, basically it got caught up, in, and it's probably also the fact that DC Entertainment got bought up by Warner Brothers and wasn't DC Comics anymore, it was DC Entertainment. So yeah. there's more bureaucracy going on, and this What's just the, kind of slipped through the way. Here's the thing, though. Go ahead, go ahead, Hero. I I was gonna say, if you're if you're the machine that Warner Brothers is, and you know that it's in the contracts of something that you've subsumed, then you create a staff to say, all right, we need to have our due diligence on any of these guys that are supposed to be getting paid stuff. And and in reading the response about how they have to proactively go and request what they're due for the characters that they've created before something hits the stands or the shelves or, you know, the video market. 
is horseshit. That is not the job of those people. They've already done their work. It is the job right. of the corporation at that point. Agreed. Due diligence and get these people paid. Well, if that's what's in their contract. And the, and the contract. thing with this, the thing with all of this is, is that, you know, it, and, and it, it's the internet. I understand that. So DC equals bad and they want to blame Dan DiDio for all of it. So Dan DiDio's been, first off, he's not running DC Entertainment. DC Entertainment is run by, I forget the, the lady's name, I don't have it in front of me, that came out of Warner Brothers. And that's what the, that's what this ultimately is. DC was always known, and Paul, and they said, and I, lots of, I know Mark Wade said this back when the, the, there was a big flare up over royalties for creators' rights right around the time that Guardians of the Galaxy came out. And he said that DC never paid the best rates for royalties, but they were, um, immaculate in their bookkeeping and paid you if, one of your comics was reprinted and sold three copies in Bulgaria. You got a check for you got three, three cents. cents. Yeah, right. So I don't. I don't think this is. I really think that, despite the protestations of the low information fanboys out there, this is not DC trying to actively screw their uh, former creative talent. No, I really think that this it's is red a tape bullshit. Exactly. This mm-hmm. is a policy that had the bright intentions, but is getting mucked up because you're getting a company the size of Warner's. People like to think that. Warner's bought DC sometime in like the late 90s. Warner's has owned DC since the 70s. This is not a new thing for them. You know, Disney buying Marvel was a new thing. Warner's owning, right. uh, buying DC has been the status quo for the majority of all of our lives. All of my life. All of my brother's life. You know, so all of your life, Hero. So th- this, this is not a, a new thing for them. Th- what it is is that now Warner's has taken such an active role in DC after for years and years and years of letting us do their own thing. The, the, the call for this was when, like you said, Sean, they changed to DC Entertainment and then they moved from New York to what's going on right now, the move out west. This is Warner's putting tighter control over what DC does, including instituting new policies like this. And if you read the response, uh, Jerry Conway's response to the open letter from Dan DiDio and Jim Lee, he talks about that Dan DiDio called him and, and, and you know, hashed all of this out and that there is a, uh, a, a, a policy in place to uh, give compensation for derivative characters. It's just it's so poorly explained and executed at the bureaucratic level that it appears to be nothing. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I'm I'm agree with you, Hero, completely. If you knowingly work work for hire, you work for hire. You know, if you don't like it, you know, go take your original character and go to Image. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why Image was formed. I mean, I don't I don't work in a creative industry, but in my and I'm an you know, I'm an engineer by trade. But you know, we have um, in the company I work for, if you design something for the client that becomes uh, uh, something that's patentable, becomes intellectual property. You have signed a piece of paper on your first day here that says any intellectual property or patents I create become the property of the parent company. And now I'm compensated for that. Uh, a guy that I've worked with for many years designed a, a vision system for, I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain, a vision system for Frito-Lay that looks at potato chips and spots if they're too dark, if they've uh, fried too long and will, if it, if the, uh, if the eye, the electric eye sees that it's too dark, a, he designed a system where a puff of air puffs it off the line so that it gets rejected. It doesn't have to be physically rejected by somebody down the line. He has a patent for this. It, it, it's floor intellectual property now, and he get a bonus check for it becoming intellectual property. It was work for hire that he did. 
Now, is, is that the same as creating a, a entertainment character? No, but it's still something that sprung from the creative portion of your mind that was done at the behest of your employer, and thus they own it. So I, I think I think it makes I think it, it kind of reads, even though it's a little bit different. You no, know, it's, it's, I definitely I, I definitely see where you're coming from. It, it's yeah. it's it's a case where it's everybody has the right intentions. But nobody's doing anything. They're not doing their follow up on it. It's it's 2015. We have the internet, right? Any but any comic that's been worked on, you can go to Mike's Amazing World and see every creator credit on it. I mean, you know, slap a, a team of five interns at Warner Brothers to go through and just start going through the backlog of every issue and marking down what characters are in what and put it in a spreadsheet. You know, and yep. <laughs> you can tell when somebody's going to need to get paid something. But the, you know. the thing about that is, is that is that is the bureaucracy of these large businesses. They don't feel the need to to take the due diligence and get this type of stuff done. When when DC was, even though it was owned by Warner Brothers, when it was run as not a, I guess such a when it's not the cog in the wheel of the Warner Brothers machine. They had people in there who are willing to take the time out and do this kind of stuff. Warner Brothers hasn't seemed to want to do that, and that's why we're getting these kind of things. I mean, you know, we've, we've seen this before with the uh, Kirby estate, and we've seen this before with the Schusters and the Seagulls. You know, it's just, it's just one more thing where it's not the company's trying to screw them, but I think it's just the whole having this big conglomerate overlooking these smaller independent things and not saying harder to pay them and if exactly how it works out that's how it works out you save some money and i'm not saying that dc and marvel are small independent companies but compared to warner brothers or disney they're small independent companies yes yeah i mean the fact that this is all getting brought to light though and i know it's different on the marvel end of things i think they have completely individual contracts with, with everybody um but in terms of DC, with the fact that the DO has been so open about addressing it, perhaps it will shed some light on it. And I mean, if he's moving out west to start dealing with stuff, him him and Jim Lee know what's going on now. It's like I'm sure they might just assign a couple people and say, "Look, we you know to avoid any negative press going forward, we right. we need to be proactive." Well, in this. I, I, also- I, I just. I just can't believe that you know they're, that it's incumbent upon the creators to have to go track down. Their yeah, I mean, if, if, there, if there was yeah. ever something that sounded like it sprung out of a meeting of fifteen bigwigs at a Warner Brothers conference room, it's that. And no you know? comic creators, right? Right. Well, we think they should have to do it themselves. That's a great idea, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. break for lunch. Yeah. yeah. Sit more cocaine all day. Yeah. More coke. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do some more blow. Yeah. yeah. It's not 1985 anymore. Oh, sorry. This is probably when this was uh, Well, heroin's not a big uh, business drug. <laughs> Actually, no, it, meth is cheap. That's true. Say, yeah. It yeah, used to be yeah, that, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, do some coke and go vote for Reagan. Now, I don't know what it is you even do. So. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, Sounds I got like my idea of a good time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, every, that's every Saturday night here, man. <laughs> I just wanted to jump in real quick. Because I read, I read um, the original uh, uh, Tumblr post. And then I went down and read, I went to his Tumblr and read the other stuff. Um, and again, someone who's not, uh, I'm not a huge comic book guy, uh, but, but you know, my own, my own admission. Uh, so I have a friend who had an exclusive with DC, um, and wrote a very successful, worked on a very successful and wrote a very successful comic for them for a number of years, um, and now has moved on from DC. And I said to him, well, how do you feel about this? 
Um, and he had said to me, he goes, well, it doesn't surprise him at all now that Warner Brothers, you know, it's, it's him as, as a creator. He said it didn't surprise him in the least that this is coming down and it seems like it's coming down from a corporate, not from DC themselves. I mean, um, having been uh, to DC when when uh, him and I went down to the city, getting into the, you know getting in the doors of DC, and you know actually you know not just meeting Dan DiDio, but having lunch with Dan DiDio and things like that. And I'm like, wow, these guys are really nice. You know, kind of thing. it's all very cool. Uh, but it's like, okay, they kind of that it doesn't seem like something they would have done. It seems like something's coming from there. And from speaking to someone who actually worked for DC. And who works for other companies? Uh, if I say too much, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, he's like, it's the way it is. It's the way it is wherever you go. And my my step back and said, well, wasn't that the idea behind Image? Isn't that really what they were going for? He's like, yeah. Except you know, it is, but Image is not, you know, all you know, peaches and sunshine. It's got its own problems and its own kind of thing. And, and where while the people may own, you know, their character there's still other issues that go on there too. Um, I think it's just the more, the more parent company involved, like, like the major parent company involvement, you guys, like you were saying, you know, Disney, you know, Warner Brothers, these are, these are not just like companies you can even kind of wrap your head around how big and massive they are because like DC and Marvel are big companies, but they're not big companies compared to them. So it just was one of the things I wanted to make sure I, 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 I was like, let me talk to somebody who actually has been in this on the other side, of, you know, of the table, kind of, set, you know, so to speak. Um, and he was like, "No, doesn't surprise me one bit." He had not actually read; he hadn't read the other part. He had heard, um, you know, uh, or, or read what the, you know, the, the, the whatever uh, Conway had said. And he said, "Doesn't shock me in the least. Doesn't shock me in the least." Um, and one of the things that was we, you know, we, we were talking about was um, him and his, his uh, guy he works with. They'll come up with stuff, and they'll say, "Wow, that's amazing." He goes, "Yeah, I'm keeping." <laughs> if he means he goes I'm not sending that in and they'll take some of the best some of the apps best work they've done will get put aside and they'll use it for something that they own and instead of sending it in to uh, whether they're working for DC or whether they're working for whoever you know at the time they'll keep these and I was like wow that's okay that makes perfect sense to me it totally does because as soon as you get there you realize like well I'm going to give them this character that I've created and they're not going to give me the rights for it. It's already happened once. Um, they created something, and then another writer used it down. Uh, it was by the Lord. They created it, and then like two and a half years later, another uh, well-known uh, person at DC used it, and then they gave him credit for it. And immediately, the human cry came up like, no, 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 it's, it's, they, they created it. And people were like, and what happened was, exactly, they were told, they're like, well, what are we going to do? And they said, that's eh, derivative. Um, because it's derivative of the character it is. And, you know, I, I know I'm kind of talking in vagaries, but he kind of asked me not to put a ton of it out there. No problem. You know what I'm saying? But it was, it was perfect. I mean, and my brother knows exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I talked about it the other day. It was, yeah. And he knew full well. He goes, well, this character, which was kind of meant to be a joke, is used in some other part of the universe. Seriously, they created it, you know, but they're not getting anything for it because it's derivative. And he's like, yeah, it's derivative. It's a joke, you know, and it's now being used. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. It, to me, it, it, as, as someone, and, and I'm truly not, I mean, I you know, uh, not doing this kind of stuff. Um, but having sat with that person, um, went back in the, the independent days when he was just trying to get things published and writing comics with him, not, not his actual comic, but writing online things and working on stuff. 
And I would always say to my brother, man, I come up with like, I come up with like 50, 60 ideas, you know, and like a couple of them show up here and there. And I'm like, man, I just like to get some credit for it. But it's not, it's part of a process. You know, I didn't go to, I mean, yeah, he was like, what do you want to do? We come over, we watch wrestling, we're eating pizza, and we're just kind of throwing ideas around. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm going to get some money for this. It was like, this is just part of the process. Um, actually, Frank Rosetta talks about it on his DVD, uh, you know, uh, with Painting with Fire, right? That's the, yeah. yeah. He talks about the idea that the guys would come and fill in, and they would go and help each other out and finish up their drawings and finish up whatever, because it was all just kind of them trying to hustle and make a buck, because it wasn't great money, but you had to hustle to make the money. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't know. It just, it just it, when I read the when I read the piece, it totally struck me as someone who's more on the outside. I was like, "Wow, this this screams fifteen suits in a room. No one's got a creative bone in their body. They're just hoping that you know that they got the right lunch orders coming in." You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, sounds that, about right. Sounds about right. You're hanging up. <laughs> Well, do we have anything it's else we want to talk joke, about? It's a joke, but it's about reality. I, I would just say, like, I don't think there's, there's really no bad guys here. It, it's just it's just one of those sort of sad things that happens when, when something gets so big. It's like, I don't I don't dislike Dan DiDio or Jim Lee. I, I think their creative decisions at the moment are boneheaded, but I'm sure they're both wicked nice guys. Well, and I, like, think, I think Jim Lee probably has a, a stake in it as well, because his entire idea for moving away from Marvel into Image was this entire was this entire concept of him having rights for his creative ideas. Yeah. So uh, he's he's got to be incredibly invested in this, and I'm certain he and DiDio and Jeff Johns are trying to work together with DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers to make sure that these people are treated fairly. So I yeah. don't want it, it I don't want to dump on these guys. Type. I, yeah, and and two things real quick. One, as far as what you just said, Sean, I agree with you because I've I've uh, I've met Dan Adio a couple of times. And I've had a chance to talk to him, and what he what always struck me about about Dan Adio, and especially if you start if if if, if you start reading the, some of his responses when people go after his creators, and you and I have talked about this before, mm-hmm. is that he's the guy that puts himself out there to take heat off his creators. Yes. That if, that if somebody has a beef with his creators, he's, he'll say, yo, you know, there was a decision that was made. It was a process, you know, and, and he puts himself out there and he takes care of his creators is what the, uh, the opinion, the uh, impression I have always got. So I'm will. I, I agree with that. And even Jerry Conway said in his follow up that he was that he was very happy that they were addressing it and getting out ahead of it, like you said, Hero. So I, I think that this is that, that that, you know, one of the things about this going public on the social media is that. It, it's it's this this wonderful age we live in where we say don't bully and shame people except if you want to bully and shame them to get what you want. Uh, so, but whether not not or saying you that could Conway bully and was shame the people who bully and shame people. Yeah, well, I'm not and I'm not saying that that's what Jerry Conway was doing. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying by exposing it and getting it out there and starting the discussion, it, it sets up it, the risk of that for sure. Yeah, well, but, but by having the discussion out there, positive change can be affected. Mm-hmm. As long as it's a discussion and it's not just people flinging poo at each other, you yeah. know? Exactly. And the, the other thing, just real quick, you mentioning uh, Jim Lee and the formation of Image. What I always thought was funny was that of the original seven Image creators, Jim Lee almost didn't go. That the, the, that the anecdote that I've always heard is that the reason why Jim Lee went is that Marvel was flying him out to San Diego Comic-Con and he asked, hey, can you get can you comp a ticket for my wife to come out with me? And Marvel told him no. 
And that if not, if Marvel had paid for that ticket, Jim Lee would have been happy to work on X-Men for Marvel for as long as they would pay him. And hmm. we wouldn't have had Wildcats or Stormwatch or the Wildstorm universe. What? If not for one plane ticket. Well, isn't that, was it some, uh, oh, crap, was it, I think it's the beginning of either, uh, it's the 20 minute, uh, and the Fathom. Uh, momentous events usually start with a small, it's something small. Yeah. Right? It's usually what happens. It's usually something small that starts something big. Right? Um, you know, think about it. There, there was no, the image itself, the idea of creator own that stuff had to come out of some people's getting sick and tired of what the heck was going on. Yeah. Mostly Todd McFarlane and Rob yes. Liefeld. Yes. Well, I understand. But, but would, but would <laughs> image have worked without, here's the thing. Would image have worked without Jim Lee? Because you can say at the time, okay, whether you love Rob Liefeld or hate Rob Liefeld, he was real popular. And Todd McFarlane was at the top of his game, but Jim Lee was the top creator of that group as far as moving units. You know? So would would it have worked without Jim Lee? It's one of those questions to have, you know, uh, um, after you've been at the con all day and you've had a few beers back at the hotel room, you know? Hmm. Or IBC root beers in your case. Well, yeah. it certainly <laughs> wouldn't have worked with Liefeld because no, it's yeah. just... His but, scheduling but, was was terrible, yeah. but well, you know, and, and that and that's why Jim Valentino was with him. Was that Valentino was? I mean, he had cut his teeth doing indie comics mm. long before he had worked for Marvel, and that the the story again goes that McFarlane, well, well, by pretty much everyone's um, you know uh, opinion, an asshole is not an idiot, and so when no, they started talking about this, he went and got Jim Valentino and said, if, "Will you come with us? Because you know how to publish indie books." <laughs> And so that, and so that, that was like, it was like, why is Valentino? He's not a star artist by any any means, but Valentino had the know-how to get it done, which is why he he became the the second publisher of Image was Jim Valentino, and what, what started the 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 transition to what Images was in the '90s to what it is today was because of what Valentino did as the publisher. Yeah, I mean, people have different jobs, you know, kind of thing, and, and you need different things. You don't, not every, not you know, you need guys. Who can, you know, get on base and steal second. You don't always need guys who just rake. You know what I'm saying? So you need guys who do different things, and that's obviously what he was there for. You know? Oh, wait, but um, he was still doing his book. I mean, oh, no, of course, of uh, course. Shadowhawk was still my favorite of the image books yeah. to, to this day, so. Yeah, what I'm saying is, but, but, you know, but people have other talents too, and that sometimes it's not just because you're like, well, you're the biggest name. You fit the, you fit what you're doing the best. Yeah. You know? And, um, and you, and, and what was funny? Issue, what is it? Uh, issue eight of Spawn, introducing Angela, written by Neil Gaiman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do we have any? Uh, you know, is, is there any better example of screwed up who owns what character based on who was working for whom than <laughs> Angela, who now belongs to Marvel of all places? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. One last thing I, I want to throw in there, uh, and we haven't mentioned him, um, is, and and uh, in part of it, I mean, Jeff John's name comes up. Um, and I, I, I love Jeff. I mean, having spoken to him a couple times, um, he, he's different than Dan. Um, you know, kind of, he's in charge and stuff. I get that. But like, you know, he's, uh, you know, a creator kind of thing. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's, I mean, what, Black as Night and all this stuff. I mean, Jeff, if, if you ever want to know about Jeff, is he'll have things like in his works, his office, and he'll have something posted. And then it'll have how you work it back. And it's like, why is that over there? Well, that's going to happen in four years. 
And this is how I'm going to set it up in this one panel here, and it's going to lead to this. And it's all going to be forced. Like, he's, he's got that kind of mind. You're going to think about those things. Um, you know, and, and his name keeps getting thrown in every once, not, not here, but I'm saying in some of the stuff I was reading, his name gets thrown in or whatever. Certainly does not strike me as someone who's like, you know what? I want to screw people out of their royalty. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's not the you know, kind of thing. That's why this, that's why this totally feels like it's not coming from, some from the guys who were running DC, you know, kind of thing. It kind of feels like it's coming from someone higher up the, you know, at the food chain who kind of is like, well, you know, how can we how can we tighten up this budget? Over? Especially when you consider how much of John's work would be considered derivative. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm, and I don't even mean that as a joke. If you think no, about no. The, the the lantern cores, I mean, a, a corporate lawyer will get that. Oh, it's a red lantern instead of a green lantern. Derivative, mm-hmm. you know. And so, so all this stuff that we that you know, a, a lot of fans. I'm not going to speak for anybody in particular, but a lot of fans really lost our minds over would be considered derivative when it comes to this. So yeah. You know, it's that's the problem when you start getting into. You know, it's it's we say this about professional wrestling all the time. Nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. You know, exactly. and it, and it's this kind of it's the the business reality of some of this stuff that is unfortunate that you have to deal with, and in today's um, social media environment, gets blasted across the front page of Newsarama and CBR and Bleeding Cool. You know, when it would have been, you know. Hey, here's previews for next issue of Secret Wars and Convergence, and now it's you know uh, you know DC screws everyone ever always forever in every multiverse, you know. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I mean if you if you want to play in the pre-established universe, you, you got you got to realize this certain stuff that you're just not going to get. Yeah, you know. The one thing, real quick, I would say it's, it's funny, but it, it totally plays into this. And and my brother's heard this before. Um, guy, I know. He worked for DC, worked for Disney, worked for a bunch of things. Um, he had a character he created um, completely on his own. Uh, D, uh, Disney contacted him, said, hey, we'd like to put this in our kids' comics. He said, great. He signed a contract. Disney then owned 51% of the character, and he owned 49%. So he no longer owned the character outright. Um, the contract he had signed, which I have actually seen, says he's not allowed to draw this character um in, you know, in like the, the state in which you live, within the country which it's your, and it's like within the continent, within the world, within the universe, or any known or unknown multiverse. Like it just kept going out. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And because I just, because the person who I, I think he's like, this is a joke. And he's like, no, you've got to see this contract. I'm like, holy crap. Like, Disney does not play. So, you know, but it's like any known or unknown multiverse. And I'm like, Huh? And he goes. The, he goes. The pay was amazing. It's <laughs> fine. They can. You know, he goes. They can have the character. Why? I can make twenty more characters, and the really good ones, I'll just keep. And I'm like, <laughs> that's awesome. Like there you he, go. It's like you know. But that's the best part. Of what it is. At no point you're like, well, you know, I made that guy. You know, it's like okay. You also know you did that under a contract for whatever. At no point did Disney say, no, no, it wasn't made by Blobbity Bloop. It just says we own that guy, so you can't do anything with him. And um, you know, I and mean, then this is a totally different issue. But that, but that kind of wording in a Disney contract, and I was thinking that's got to be almost twenty years ago at this point. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? And I mean, that, we're, not, we're not talking even Disney Marvel at that point. We're talking just Disney, and he's doing a little kid thing. You know, and then God forbid your anything becomes a cartoon, you know, kind of thing that comes totally different. Hmm. 
So. Okay, well, if, if we're ready to wrap this up, I might as well let you guys know this Conway crossover thing that we're doing is coming out with a bunch of different podcasts that if you're not listening to and you want to hear more people talk about uh, Jerry Conway's creations and uh, possibly have discussions about wh- how they feel about this situation, you can also check out these podcasts, the Superman and Batman co- podcast hosted by Michael Bradley, Flowers and Fishnets, hosted by Ryan Daly, Comic Book Time Machine by Ben Avery, The Supermates Podcast with Chris and Cindy Franklin, The Hammer Podcast with Gene Hendricks, Superman Forever Radio by Bob Fisher, Task Force X and Head Speaks by Aaron Head Moss, uh, Alan Middleton's going to be doing a Quarterbin podcast, Rob and Shag did the Fire and, Wadpat, Fire and Water podcast where they talked to Jerry Conway himself, Chad Bulkman and Mark Barbell are doing a Lantern Cast podcast on it, uh, Tom Panarese is doing a pop culture affidavit and Andy Bebcart I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that is doing a flash podcast about it uh, also King Size Comics Giant Side Fun by Kyle Benning possibly J. David Weeder, Dave's Daredevil podcast and from Kid to Flash from Chris Ivey is going to be doing a blog post on that so there's tons of stuff uh, that you can listen to talking about Jerry Conway celebrating his comics Definitely go check out these podcasts if you if yes, you'd like to. Yes, the best and brightest in podcasting. Not us, and, everybody else. <laughs> the best and brightest and Shag. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, so there's nothing you're saying? There's nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly. <laughs> hey, he's doing something right. He got the man on himself, so. Yeah. I know, but it's, you know, it's we got to give Shag a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> what, would I mean, be all, if, okay, if Tom, everyone. See, everyone. Thomas was here. You know, there'd be a line said. We won't see it tonight. <laughs> no, because because we 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 have to admire you, Shag. You getting Conway on and getting him to discuss all that. You know, that was a nice primer for what we had to talk about on this show. So thank you, Shag. Thank you, Rob, for that. And of course, thank you, Mister Conway, for creating all this all this stuff. And we hope that you know things get worked out and you know things are equitable between you and uh, the companies that you work for. And uh, just thank you again. Are Fuck we you shag? Was <laughs> <laughs> it? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> I think that's a good out. That is a good out. Thank you, Chris. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. Dumbass. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. 
Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.